Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. I'm Chantel. I'm Tiso. And every few weeks we get together, normally with Saskia, and talk about things that have annoyed us in the news and things that have annoyed us in our daily lives. And we try to understand things from a more sociological perspective. This week I'm going to talk about black essentialism. And what I mean by this is the homogenization of people of colour, or in this context, black people. And what homogenization means is that you group people together based on a particularity, so in this sense their skin colour, and claim that they have um, certain behaviours and with regards to a lot of what I'm going to talk about today, certain deviances which are typical of people of this skin colour, which is just completely factually inaccurate and delves into realms of race. And race, as we know, and something that we've spoke about a lot in this podcast, is socially constructed. It is not a biological fact. What I guess I'm getting really frustrated with now, more than ever, is how much mainstream media outlets and even the government sort of condone this essentializing of groups of people. And I'm just tired of it. I'm really tired of it. And I I wanted to sort of start off with something a little bit more positive, talking about when me and Tiso first met. So me and Tiso first met uh, back in the summer of 2016 at Goldsmiths on the PhD induction day. And we sort of clocked each other, um, possibly because we are the only people of colour in the room. And what it, reminiscent about this time when me and Tiso met, it made me think about um, how our relationship is probably built not just on the fact that we are recognised as black, but our working class credentials and the fact that we both like comics and that we like sociology and the fact that we do a PhD. But people would see us as black academics. And I guess one of the things that I have a problem with is that representation matters. So we need to see more people that look like us in mainstream society, whether that's in the media, whether that's in universities, whether that's teachers. But at the same time, we don't want to essentialise the experiences of people that are recognised as black or people of colour. Um, And I guess, yeah, so it's this issue with representation and reality and how categorising people has not led to very good social policies, I would say. But equally, we do need the representation. It's a really difficult one that you're sort of stuck between. But at the same time, when we're seeing the rise in or the apparent rise in violent crime in the case point of London and the way the media reports on that, you just start to get this myth of black criminality come out, grouping people together based on their skin colour. And yeah, so I guess I've sort of flipped between mine and Tiso's relationship in academic setting and representation and then I've spoke about black criminality, but it all comes down to the fact that you can't essentialise experiences and people based on invented racialized categories although socially they do tend to matter in the way we get treated but it's funny that you say that talking about representation so obviously there's a big thing about knife crime and violent crime in london and it's it's cast as an urban problem they don't say race anymore it's an urban problem so that's code for black kids yeah but it's funny when you say representation you need to see more people like us on tv so 
whenever I see things about urban news, they always be like a black person. Yeah. It's always a black a black person who was an ex gang member who's now a youth worker. Yeah. Always on TV. But when we talk about science, we don't see black academics. Yeah. We don't see black economists, even though they are. Yeah. They, they exist. You don't see them. Mm-hmm. So it's quite interesting that this thing about representation, when they think the problem is, when I say they, the media, when they think the media is something to do with black criminality, it's a black problem, we really like black people to talk about that problem. Yeah. And this is where, this is the crux of the problem. I can talk about many things. <laughs> I don't have to talk about hip hop or yeah. street culture. I'm more than that. We are more than that. Yeah. And in 2018, I think now we should recognise that. Definitely, T. And I guess another point that I wanted to make about this is I went to, and do you know what, it's an absolutely amazing conference and the organisers behind it have got nothing but great intentions and it's a really good initiative and as I said, representation, I believe, does matter. But I went to a conference titled BME Academic, staying in postgraduate education and it was mainly sort of STEM focus, so STEM being science, um, technology, engineering and maths. And I'm sat there and I'm thinking, first of all, it's amazing to be in a room with so many academics of colour, so many black people that are carrying on in university education. Like, that's something that I never see. I'm always, always in the minority. That's an amazing feeling. But I'm also sat there thinking, when various speakers are coming on, I get where you're coming from, but I've probably got more in common with someone that is recognised or recognises themselves as working class than I have with some of these people And that isn't a problem. But the fact is, when we have these codes like BME, B-A-M-E, who is that serving? Is that serving people that need to have some sort of diversity quota? Is it it a tokenistic thing for um, institutions, establishments? I want to talk about how representation can be misused. So I don't... That conference was incredible, but it did make me think about how we just really need to move towards inclusivity rather than categorising people based on their skin colour. And with that inclusivity, what we need to talk about more is rather than categorising people, is more about the effects of these categories. I was talking to Les Back about this the other day and talking about Paul Gilroy and him saying that these categories, racialized categories, black, Asian, minority, ethnic, are not valid. They can't, we can't use them because you can't categorize people based on their skin color. People are people. But at the same time, we need to understand what the effects of these categories are, like racism. That's what the difficulty with having a conference that is focused on BME academics, say, in academia, even though. It's really important to have representation and we need more people that are going on into university and being role models. But at the same time, when we homogenise groups, it just leaves very little space for nuance and us to be basically imperfect human beings. We are judged first by our skin colour. And I guess I'm just finding it really difficult at the moment because more than ever I'm seeing the mainstream media homogenise black people. What's tough, and I hear this argument from the right, um, is that there is a kind of evolutionary response in us, so we seek to categorise people because it served a purpose at one time in our in, in our evolution. So we would categorise different groups of people so we can react to danger. But when we even the terms like race mm. and this kind of evolutionary theory gets kind of grafted onto race, mm. it becomes problematic because I mean, as we know, race is not a really a true thing; it's a social contract. However, there's people that would argue against that, but this is what I believe. 
it's, it's a difficult thing because how do you get new ones when people automatically seek to group people? Yeah. And it makes people feel at ease. So people prejudge people. Prejudice is a natural reaction. So how do you kind of separate that mm-hmm. and, and, and try to say, listen, you need to understand me as a person first. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult thing to do. And we've tried and tried. And the history of Africans in America, Africans in Europe, is about trying to get people to realise the nuance in us. Mm-hmm. We're not just a thing. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, we're, still, we're still here. We're still struggling to this point where I'm still talking about today. Yeah. I'm trying to get you to recognise me as a human being. So all these things as like black criminality. I'm no more predisposed to crime than you. Yeah. But yet this is a thing. So this response to the, um, the current kind of uh, crises in London about the black criminality... Now, they're seeking to go back to this uh, stop and search. Mm. But stop and search in the UK is historically a bad thing for us. So we have a historic memory. And so, for example, if you go back to the 80s with the uh, sus laws, where police used to stop black guys and arrest them and and effectively beat them up, Mm. release them with no charge. So stop and search for us, it's a kind of... It's tainted the relationship between the police Mm -hmm. and the black community. Now, Tony Blair in his heyday gave that mantra tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. I think going back to this, government is seeking to seek to do the easier thing, which is being tough on crime, the symptom. But it's not dealing with the causes of crime. Mm-hmm. So it's not dealing with the issue or the, the kind of fallacy of black criminality. It's just saying we are a problem and just lock, lock them up. And the best example of this is America. Mm. Tough on crime, but on the causes of crime... No one looks at the social issues. If you look at the social issues, we can understand why there is a problem and deal with that problem. Mm-hmm. But being tough on crime is the easier solution. We just lock people up. Mm-hmm. But this, this, that's only can go take you so far. So I don't know where we go really. I, I think, I think definitely try to be more inclusive. But how do you do that? This is what people. How do you become more inclusive? I believe that you stop talking about things in terms of race and start talking about things in terms of racisms. So why is it that more black boys are getting stabbed on the street in London? Mm-hmm. Maybe because they live in areas which have had no investment, mm-hmm. have had a cut in community um, policing, have had disproportionate cuts to children's services, youth services. There are so many different reasons that are linked to racism. This is the thing, Look at the causes. And I think for any government to try and tackle that, it's political suicide. Mm. Because how do you deal with that problem in five years? Mm. You can't. And so what happens is, uh, this is the, so this is always a story, what happens is government attempts to do it, they focus more on the symptom, so locking people up, mm. but the actual causes, we don't really do anything about it. So this is why people always say history repeats itself, it's the same thing, but it's not. It's just an unresolved issue. Mm. So back in the early 80s, it's the same thing. Stephen Lawrence reported the same thing. All these things, it's the same thing. Nothing ever gets resolved, but we just have a kind of like a, a paper job. Mm. Very, very cosmetic. Mm. But not, the actual real issue, the causes of crime, and when it, it's, it's a difficult issue. No one wants to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it means looking at the whole systemic issue of poverty, mm. of social inequality, to look at these real issues and trying to take, tackle them. And like I said, for me, it's not even a race thing, it's more of a class thing, because working class people, black, white, all subject to these, these pressures. Well, it's, linked, it's obviously heavily linked to class. Mm. I don't think with where, when we're looking at this sort of thing. I don't think we can talk about class without talking about race mm-hmm. and vice versa. Um, I guess what I'm definitely struggling with at the moment is this 
the position of representation and the position of, of reality and the lived experience of being a person of colour means that you are subject to institutional racism. Like, we've, we've spoke about this, me and you, Tiso, a lot on the podcast. But at the same time, the thing we have in common is the fact that we can be or have been oppressed by institutional racism. Is that our only defining factor? What can sociology do to say, actually, these categories are not... They're not doing anything. They're not helping people of colour. We need to look at racism. We need to look at what whiteness means. (laughs) And that's not necessarily to categorise whiteness. That's to emphasise that it is a social construction which privileges certain people. Personally, my research topic is looking at the far right, particularly like the the neo-Nazi groups. And my issue is that for the first time, I think... We studied race from all aspects, but from the aspect of the oppressed. Mm-hmm. So looking at whatever ethnic group you're looking at. But no one's looked at the oppressor in any detail. Yeah. In every conversation I've ever had from primary school up until now, it's always looking at the victims and what the victims went through from. So we're talking about slavery, so we're talking mm-hmm. about this. I'm looking at a different point of view now. So why does this exist? Where does this oppression come from? So looking at whiteness as a systemic issue. Mm-hmm. So are white people all racist? No. no. So that's a nonsense. But I'm looking at this system that's been set up that allows this kind of oppression to carry on and to seem as normal, Mm. this is what's quite kind of troubling. I suppose it's the same way as patriarchy kind of exists. Mm. It it just exists and it's never really critiqued. It's not until the second wave feminism, people start critiquing patriarchy in itself, but Mm. until then it's assumed to be normal. Mm. The same thing with whiteness, it just seems to be normal. Mm. And I think for the first time we need to start seriously asking questions about this edifice and thinking to myself, well, how do we resolve this? Mm-hmm. But once we do start talking about it, people feel attacked mm-hmm. and feel threatened. And I'm not, it's, it's not a threat. We're not trying to take power away. I just want to be treated fairly. This is all this, this is all about. I shouldn't have to beg, scrape, and uh, make my case to be treated fairly. Mm. And this is, this, is, this is everyone's right to be treated fairly. Mm-hmm. And that's all I want. And this has been a historic case. I've been arguing this for a long time now. Mm. So not when I say I, what I'm talking about, well, I was talking about we collectively. Yeah. What was quite profound to me, um, looking at what David Lammy has been saying about violent crime and the deaths in London recently, is that it's only when this starts affecting white people, when something more concrete on the causes will actually happen. Because we're not we're not treated equally because of racism, not because we are black. Like because I mean, the fact is, racism happens because we are of color. But this doesn't happen because we are inherently different to white people. This happens because of the social structures which affect our lives and reproduce racism. So I completely agree with you, T. Like there needs we need to look more at the oppressor. But then white people need to realise it's not pers- It's not necessarily personal to the individual. Like, I'm not saying to you, look, this is all your problem. It's not about that. It's like saying, I think people get offended because like, it's like when, when second wave feminism started critiquing patriarchy and they would talk about men, men would get, feel threatened. Yeah, but you sit now with the Me Too movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too, like it's a personal attack on men. Yeah. But it's, it's, not, it's, it's almost a theoretical debate. We're talking about something that exists that you can't see, but we know yeah. it exists. Because you're quite aware, like, we know there's a ceiling on certain places, certain places you can go. Mm-hmm. You can't, so if you go to a company, the top of the company is probably going to be full of white men. It's just a fact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we should be... I think 
think in 2018 now, like we should be mature enough to talk about these issues and not feel threatened, not feel. <clears throat> we're still not though. We're still we're, we're we're not. Then people, it's no one's up for it still at this stage. Think... And you you're seeing like. Stuart Hall, police in the crisis, Paul Gilroy, they ain't no black and union jack. They said, they talked about this in the 70s and the 80s, and it's like history repeating itself. So we can talk about what's happening now, but this was happening 30 years ago. It was always happening. This has always been happening. It's it's unresolved, like I said to you before. These are unresolved issues. And until we kind of, like I said, cosmetically, we deal with them. And then on a kind of micro level, people pot around in their individual lives and you don't really encounter it. If you do encounter it, you deal with it then. Mm-hmm. So in my life, I've kind of potted around. So these big social issues have been going on, but mm-hmm. in my life, I've potted around. I've worked in a corporate environment, come back to edu- higher education. Uh, it's usually areas that are dominated by, well, I'm usually a minority in most, most of those cases, mm-hmm. but you deal with it on an individual basis. And so your, your experiences are not replicated in the, in the larger narrative. Mm-hmm. You just deal with it. But these issues are still not dealt with. And it... When I look at all the far-right stuff and all the things they're saying, it's, there's a, like a threat of identity. Mm-hmm. Like, if you talk about these issues of representation and getting more black people there, people think they're losing their identity. And this is a key mark of all, especially, especially populist politics in modern Europe and, and, and in America. The idea that your identity is under threat if we talk about representation. If, if I want to see more of me somewhere, that means there's going to be less of you. And it's so funny because you listen to them saying, oh, white identity is being attacked like we're we're going to be minoritized you're still in charge of everything well, this, this is what you're I'm still in charge of everything and you know what in the 90s the noughties even now you've got things like diver- you've got things like diversity which is for white people by the way you have things like equal opportunities that is the way of getting tokenistic representation mm. you're still that those people are still nowhere near in as much power as white people. Mm. So just, like, get to know. Like, do you know what I mean? There's this imagined sense of oppression, which is informed by racism, which is just holding us back. Well, I think, like I said, if, if from the right, the way they see it, like, they, they feel overrun, their <coughs> identity is being taken away. And given the examples they take, for example... That they kind of quote areas like in Hungary as being a bastion against the Muslim hordes, or if you come to an area where well, I'm from, East London, and they say the borough that I live in, Tower Hamlets, is being overrun by Bangladeshi Muslims, and it's a, in in their terms, it's a no-go area. So this is a, I, this is an example yeah. of a place where representation, multiculturalism, pushed ethnic minorities to the top, and they feel their identity has been expunged but I, I don't it's, it's not really that way if you come there you'd, you'd see it the reality is different yeah but this is this is a real issue for people and you can see it it's such an issue that it's become a political issue it's at the top of the agenda mm-hmm. identity and representation now dictates who gets in power so mm-hmm. Trump you make all these populist calls about representation seeing us mm-hmm. American first Britain first who's British who's American who's allowed to be British yeah. who's allowed to be American and you're seeing it now, uh, I just want to talk briefly, um, just it feels right to mention it, about the deportation of the um, children, the children of the adults that came to Britain um, from the Commonwealth, so, from the Commonwealth in quotations. And you're seeing elderly black people being deported or saying that they are not British and they never have been British. And it's like, how has it got to this? How has it got to this? 
like I said, I think they were. Were they were they ever British? Are black people, are people of colour, ever allowed to be British when yes. it comes down to it? I think when the people in, in charge say they are. <laughs> so when your empire was in control, yeah, you, you could be British, but mm. you're not fully British, but you're part of the British. Mm. And when you needed the help in 1945, you're British then. Mm. When they needed help, yeah, post-war. But then by the 80s, you're a problem. You're a social problem. Yeah. You're a pariah, so... And we were talking about, as well earlier, um, Radio 4 announced today, so we've recorded this on Thursday the... Is it the 12th today? 12th of April. So on Saturday, they're planning. I don't know if they're going to go ahead with it. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. They're planning to um, broadcast Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech, which won't go into too much detail on. Very racist speech, talking about the hordes of black people in the West Midlands that were going to be taking over and contaminating white Englishness. They're broadcasting this on Radio 4. And I said to Tisa, I said, why are they doing that? Why is black pain or why is the pain of people of colour? Why is that seen as something which is okay to broadcast? What about the people that were alive at that time that, that don't want to listen to that? And Radio 4 have come back and said, well, we're going to be critiquing it. And it's like, anyway, I was talking to Tisa about this and Tisa said that the reason why Britain thinks it can do this stuff is because it thinks it's over race. Yeah, I think... I think first I should clarify. I, I, I think any history. I, I like history, so anything that's happened, we I think we should talk about. It. So if, if they're going to broadcast it, yeah, we should broadcast it and talk about it. But also at the same time, Britain is in a funny. It finds itself in a kind of unique position because when it talks about race, Britain it seems that there is no race problem here. It's, we assume that we are over race. When we talk about race, we always think it's an American problem or a European problem because they were they had fascism, so they've got a problem with race. But Britain. We seem to think we're unique, and this kind of uniqueness stems from the fact that we, we kind of we avoided social revolutions. We had parliamentary democracy. We had, we, we were the first to industrialize on a large scale. We think we're unique, but we're not. We just haven't resolved. We know we don't talk about problems. We're like that kind of in a kind of like therapy setting. That person never talks about their emotions. It keeps it bottled up. Mm. They're there, but we never talk about them. Mm. So we just keep it quiet. It's very British. Sorry, that's a really good point on homogenisation there. So I've said I don't think that they should broadcast Enoch Powell's speech. <laughs> Tiso thinks they should as a marker of history. We do not have the same opinions just because <laughs> we are, are recognised as black or brown or we identify as that. That's a really important, just another really yeah. important point about how we differ. Yeah, I agree. There's so much deep-seated racism that where it doesn't get addressed, we are now seeing it coming out in more overt and in some cases covert ways and it's a problem yeah I, I think if you don't talk about it, like I said in the 21st century now we should be at a point to understand that these things happen for me as a man to say sexism doesn't exist would be to say I'm ignoring reality same thing as saying racism doesn't exist say I'm ignoring reality mm. and people's experiences not just pe- people are close to me so we should be able to talk about it and we should be able to kind of get deeper into it and I don't mind if people take up a, a kind of a diametrically opposed opinion. This is this is the whole point. This is the whole point where we can talk and debate and get things out in the open. Mm. But I'm fed up of seeing the same stereotypes being banded around and from from the far right in the most extreme, talking about black criminality to mainstream media. Talking about black criminality yeah. as well, yeah. But in the most kind of innocuous way, like 
the, what's worse is it's insidious. They don't really, it's not very blatant or overt. It's very covert. Mm-hmm. And code is what I know you're speaking about me. Yeah. Or Hollywood movies. And I'm thinking, come on, guys, man. Like, we're more than that now. You yeah. know that. We are more than that. Yeah. We are more than our skin colour, even though we are subject to racisms constantly. Um, T, talk to me about the internet. Right. Today, uh, what's been... Well, I guess, actually, we could actually treat this as you talking more, talking about your research. Yeah. And so just talk to us a little bit about what your PhD is about and then talk to me about what we need to do about the internet. So I've been... My research is basically looking at the far right and online activity like on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, etc., etc. Um, but so this week we have, like... Mark Zuckerberg in front of the con- in the Congress, in mm. front of the um, senators, giving a hearing about the kind of Cambridge Analytica scandal and all this data breaching and all this kind of stuff. Then, conversely, like I said, with my research, I'm looking at the far right and all the kind of all the kind of I suppose fascist and Nazi propaganda that's online now, and how it's become mainstream, normalised. <clears throat> so it got me thinking about the internet in general. Now. When you look at the when you look at it from all the problems it's causing, the first you think internet was a mistake. <laughs> we weren't ready for the internet. But I've been kind of thinking that it's not the internet's not the problem. The problem is people, us. This has always been the problem. So initially when the internet first started, it was seen as like a pioneering place. It was seen as a place that would be it could disrupt the kind of um Monopolies and oligarchies that have existed in the world for years, and it did. When first, when Facebook started, it took on the kind of established media giants, so the newspaper barons. It disrupted them, so they can't produce papers in the same way that they could. Look at TV, for example. Now, because everyone can stream from the device, TV companies have to be more in it, like innovative. It, yeah, that's the word. And <laughs> like, um, look for new strategies to keep hold of their customers. Like Netflix changed the game. Mm. Apple, iTunes changed the whole music industry. Decades of mm. progress. It could be disrupted by a small group. Look at um, people power. So the kind of uh, the spring revolutions in <laughs> the Middle East. Arab Spring, yeah. The Arab Spring. So the people can change stuff. The internet was a, a space where you think, yeah, anything could happen. The, the individual has power. But then how it's kind of evolved is that it's, from my research and from what I've seen as well, it's the internet's taken on the kind of the worst characteristics of the real world. And it hasn't been regulated in any way, shape or form. What I mean by this is that, for example, companies such as Facebook, which control, I think it's about 70% of the social media market, Google, which controls 92% of the search market, have been allowed to establish a dominant market position, a monopoly. Now, you don't even have to be an an economist to know that monopolies are bad. We've established this a long time ago in the real world, and we we, we seek to regulate that. So, for example, in the real world, Disney is trying to buy Fox, and there's been issues over competition. So people are quite rightly analysing this and saying, is this a deal that should go forward? Mm. But yet, when it comes to the online world, no one says a thing. Yeah. Uh, for example, we've got to the situation now, if you're a smartphone level like I am, there's only two operating systems available, Google's Android and Apple's iOS. Mm. So there's only two. So Google in that market controls 88% 
of the mobile market share, 88%. So even if you want a different, say if you were pissed off of Android or iOS, you had no choice, you've got no choice. How did we get to this point, given that we live in a world of free market economics, where, we, where, the, where the market is king and choice is king? So socio- sociologically, we're talking about dominance here, aren't we? <laughs> and what happens when you have dominance and a few people at the top that are controlling a lot of people? Well, this is it. If you're, because of Facebook's dominant market position, in the congressional hearing that's happening this week, if you look at it, they're not really giving them a hard time. They're actually being quite nice to him. And you see how he's going... Oh, he keeps referring to the for, to, for, he keeps referring back to the fact that they started Facebook in his dorm, mm-hmm. and it's like stop trying to like overshadow the fact that you're a thirty three year old billionaire. You know exactly what you are doing. It's like the innocent like he's going back on. Well, well, Facebook was started in my dorm at Harvard, and like it, do you know what I mean? There's like this sort of paternalistic thing going on, even in the congressional hearing. Like the- even in the congressional hearing, one of the guys, one of the and said, this could only happen in America, your story of success. So they see it as a success story. Yeah. But you have to understand that from a kind of, if you shift it again, Mark Zuckerberg's own personal ambition is that he was running for, well, potentially for being president. Yeah, I heard about this. So it, it, this is like a PR exercise in trying to get him part, to be part of the system because they, the people know how influential his, his company is. And this is the point. If you have a dominant position, like we understand in basic economics, Monopolies have a dominant position and they can distort the market and have unintended outcomes. They're like states, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Google, Facebook. The problem is the problem I have is if you have this much power and you have to remember these are these are not public bodies. They're not out for the human interest. No, they're out for one thing, profit. which is profit. Ultimately, it comes to shareholder value. Yeah. So all these companies will do anything to maximize profit. So if it means scraping your data, they will. Mm-hmm. So, for example, one of the things that came out in the hearing from Facebook, they do these things called shadow profiles, which is when you, when you, when you log into Facebook and you, you sign up to go through your contacts, it takes profiles of all your contacts. So your people in your address book have now profiles on Facebook, but they don't exist openly. They're shadow profiles. Now, Mark Zuckerberg said he didn't know about it, but it, it, it exists. It's a thing. So these companies are always acting in the interest of their shareholders. Now, that's why people shouldn't be shocked about all these revelations. They're always going to do this. But the problem is, when the internet was first conceived, it was conceived as an unambiguous good. That it's always done for, it's always going to be a good thing for people to talk. And not something that manipulates not people. Not something that can manipulate people and, and, and be used by oligarchies that exist in the real world. So what, is, what are the consequences of this dominance are you finding in your research? I'm finding, so... Look, if you look at the work of um, Jürgen Habermas, and he talks about the life world, which is civil society, right? And he talks about the systems, which is, which if you want to talk about the corporate or, or the kind of political elites, they have evaded, these, these elites have invaded this free space that we used to have, the internet, and they've monopolised it. They're mm-hmm. taking it over. Mm-hmm. So where does this leave the individual, us? Well, we kind of, from... For my research, we seem to be a bit lost. Mm. We seem to kind of lost our way. So on the internet now, we behave in ways that were at best shocking. Mm. So how mean we are, how vicious we are to people, how narcissistic we are. It has taken the worst traits of human beings mm-hmm. and amplified them. But in the real world, we've dealt with these issues. So 
we understand that you can't be rude to people. We understand in real world, in the real world, freedom of speech comes with rights and responsibilities. Well, some people have understood that. <laughs> I, um, <but laughs> Refer back to the first part yeah. of this programme. <laughs> but, yeah. I, I think in general, people understand the rules of society. So looking at work of like a sociologist Emil Durkheim, society is everything. And society makes you conform in certain ways. However, online, people become unshackled from those rules. Yeah. And this is problematic. So not just people, companies as well. So companies, like, for example, are acting in, ways that are in a monopolistic way, but they know in real life they shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. So the internet is kind of, it's almost made society regress because we're questioning things that we know the answer to. So the issues of freedom of speech, we've been through this before. We understand the rules, but online, it seems to kind of put things in there that you can say what you want. I totally agree with you, how people can just act in a way that is just awful online. Do you think that that is appearing offline now? Do you think that this is, that the internet is giving people the voice or giving people the courage to act in a way that is discriminatory, offensive... In real, in offline, in real life settings. You know, in a nutshell, yes. Yeah. What you're seeing is the, the kind of merging of the online and the real line world. Or, or, sorry, of the real world. Sorry. So they were never separate, but they were one and the same. But now you're seeing the normalisation of behaviour that you would see online in the real world. And examples of this would be offensive speaking that would, to anyone, women. Mm. Uh, ethnic minorities, mm-hmm. the way people talk about freedom of speech and the arguments that they're having, mm-hmm. it almost seems like people don't really understand the social norms mm-hmm. that exist and have existed. Mm-hmm. My issue is, like I said, if I go back to the beginning, the internet is just a tool. Mm-hmm. And like any tool in our life, be it cars, be it guns, be it anything, we have laws to regulate the, action, the use of those tools. But the internet is the only thing I can think of. There's no regulation that exists at the moment. So if you want to drive a car, we have certain laws to understand how to navigate that world, how to deal with accidents on that road. Any eventuality, we have regulation in that space. Mm. But yet in the internet, there is none. So what do we need to do? I think for the first time ever, I think government needs to step in and start to regulate the internet. That's really interesting to you because I reckon, I think I asked you about this about six months Mm. ago, and I think you said... I think you said no. No, but that, yeah, that's interesting yeah. because this just shows how it's really important that we change our minds about stuff and that we're able to change our mind about stuff and that... You see what I mean? When I, the first... What I was scared of was if government comes in, government has sometimes a tendency to be overzealous and it would limit freedom of speech and I value freedom of speech. However, in this point in time, with no regulation, you... you like I said, the excesses of the internet... like. Again, these are the excesses. Most people use it in there and it's fine. Mm-hmm. But the excesses of the internet are so detrimental, be it from child abuse mm-hmm. to neo-Nazi rantings. It's so innocuous and dangerous that I think now is the time to step in. And also not just to curb people's behaviour, but to curb companies' behaviour. Yeah. You cannot have a company like Google, and I love Google, that presents itself to be benign. Mm. We know companies are not benign. So, for example, Google... Uh, used to see itself as its company motto used to be don't be evil now <laughs> to present itself as a very helpful and altruistic company but by 2009 it changed that to do the right thing do the right thing means do the right thing by shareholders really yeah so this is what I'm saying it's understanding that these are companies and companies need to be regulated because otherwise they're free to do what they want you end up with situations where 
Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, where these people are uh, purposefully bending the rules to push a certain agenda. Well, I mean, it's a slightly different topic, but even with Facebook and Google, that when you when I watch the um, panorama on the Paradise Papers, and they like these aren't tech companies; mm-hmm. these are professional tax avoiding mm-hmm. companies. So there's that element to it as well. They're not even paying their way. This is the thing. So, for example, Amazon. Oh, but they're creating jobs, though. They create jobs. But create jobs. But <laughs> you don't want to get in a situation again, and this is almost a situation we're, we're kind of moving to, where these companies are too big to fail. Mm. So they've convinced us now that... We need them. We need them to exist. No company, I don't need any company, they exist on my behalf. I pay them mm. to use their services. If we stop paying them, they don't exist. And, th- and that's how the market should work, and that's how you promote a, a decent service. However, they've convinced you they're integral to your life. Facebook has convinced you it's integral to people's lives. Well, my hope is that Facebook's dying, but I guess I can only talk about my own echo chamber that people don't use it as much. But then even if Facebook dies, they own Instagram as well, don't they? But, yeah, they own Instagram yeah. Facebook. But like I said, these companies, it's like they've created what they call walled gardens. That was the approach that they've taken. So they hook you in all their services. So, for example, Google's and Google and Apple are probably the best examples of this. They've created services that tie you in. So people will say, I can never leave an iPhone. I, c- I couldn't leave the ecosystem. That's why I did it on purpose. I, I mean, I know I've only got, I've got a Google phone now, <laughs> but I left iPhone because I just hated that that power that I see they've got over me. The that they create. And that even in my, fr- like my group of friends, they're like, oh my God, I can't believe you're leaving Apple. It's like, guys, five years ago, like we remember a time where we used to have like Sony Ericsson's, Nokia's, where we weren't so reliant on that brand. And it's... We really need to just get to the point where the consumer takes back control, if that makes sense. But how do you get there? To to liberate someone from this, I don't know, it's it's almost kind of dystopian nightmare where you're dependent on companies. For example, if you're tied into the Google Google ecosystem, the algorithms will send you certain news news in your feed. Mm -hmm. And so Google and and Apple also do this thing, are shaping your views. Mm -hmm. So if if I presented you a kind of scientific novel about shady organisations shaping people's views, that's like almost brainwashing. Mm. That could be a sign, that could be a novel. But this is actually happening. Mm. So, for example, because they know I look at far-right stuff, Google will send me far-right stuff Yeah. on a daily basis. Tiso looks at far-right stuff for his PhD research, <laughs> Sorry, not yeah. because he's a member of the far-right. <laughs> FYI. Or, or if I look at trains. So th- these algorithms are shaping people's opinions. So these, these companies start looking at ethically, what is this the right thing to do? So... Off the back of this, there's been a lot of research by tech companies into dopamine, calling it the wonder molecule, how to get people hooked onto things. So dopamine is a neurochemical um, response that the body generates to reward good behaviour. Mm. So it's to reward, by rewarding good behaviour, it creates a habit. So by looking at your phone, by getting a like, mm. it makes you feel a certain way. So you want to go back for that feeling. So it creates, it. A, creates a kind of routine. So one of the arguments was by this company called, I can't remember the name, is it ethical for them to do this, to kind of create and train people to behave in a certain way? Yeah. Because companies, they won't act in, your, in their best interest. Yeah. Ultimately, any company acts in its shareholders' interests. Mm. So sociologically thinking and also like on a social level thinking as well, what do we do? So first of all, we need regulation now, you're saying. I think... And what else? I think we need to regulate companies. I think also... I think regulate the internet or regulate companies or companies, both companies both probably yeah. need to be but I think also on a, a more personal level I think 
we, I think it's kind of linked. Per, on a personal level, people need to start behaving as digital citizens rather than individuals. As a citizen, you have rights and responsibilities and, and how to behave to your fellow citizen mm-hmm. that we do in the real world. So this should be reflected in the online world. Yeah. Because at the moment, people act as uh, kind of... Irresponsibly. Well, they act as individuals and as in their words don't have any effect. Yeah. And so you, they say stuff without really understanding the consequence and they use the argument of freedom of speech but the freedom of speech argument is so is so removed and so abstract in there it doesn't make any sense anymore mm. the internet is no longer a, a marketplace of ideas mm. it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a society of people mm. and people doing different things and we know when people come together there's always going to be issues mm. so you have to act with tact with skill and sometimes negotiate your way through these things but you can't just say something like I, I, I don't know um Offen- highly offensive, highly offensive. Yeah. There, there's so much stuff on there like from the like, the manosphere like, which is a, a part on the internet deal, deals with like men's rights issues to I don't know like I said racism racism like stuff trolls that, um, yeah like, behavior, that behaviour in real life is unacceptable because there's yeah. consequences that it, because if you've done it in someone's face there would be a consequence yeah but the, the anon- I can't pronounce the word anon- anonymity that's the word <laughs> that the internet provides allows people to behave in a certain way like I said we're not individuals now we are, it's a social space, and in that social space, we come to rights and responsibilities. So we need to have, I would argue, a digital rights charter. Nice, <laughs> regulate it. <laughs> You've been listening to Chantel and Tiso for Surviving Society. We'll be back every few weeks. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate us. Thank you.